Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hello, welcome to the 214th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Merlin Kamotzi, Kentrell Barnes, and... Jamie Sadler. I'm Adam Hill. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have Martha Stevens on the podcast. She is a director. She's had four features premiere at film festivals, the first two at South by Southwest, the second two at Sundance, so not a horrible batting average. And she has a new movie coming out, the fourth movie, the Sundance film, To the Stars. And when I say coming out, I mean it's already out right now. came out April 24th. Martha's new film premiered at Sundance, like Warren said. You can check it out on your iTunes and your Amazons. And I think it's an interesting conversation about how we as filmmakers kind of imagine that a theatrical run is the pinnacle of what we're aiming for and dreaming of. But I think the reality is, like we've been learning for years now, but is especially true during this pandemic, VOD and streaming is really the way that most people are watching movies. So it's an interesting conversation about her approach to understanding that that was going to be a big part of the equation. Uh, And also just her overall evolution as a filmmaker and how she came to directing to the stars after having done multiple mumblecore features and also kind of being the darling of Sundance. She also lives in Washington, which is unique to a lot of filmmakers, especially ones that have had so many successes. So I think we get her perspective on being a film director outside of Los Angeles. And we even dive a little bit into some craft stuff, talking about how you shoot period pieces and some of the strategies she employed to make the movie feel both of a certain time, but also modern and mm-hmm. with a fresh perspective on on youth. So it's a, it's a really fun conversation. Yeah, she learned a ton in her mumblecore roots, but also like how you pivot and learn to deal with something that's much more contained and crafted and less improvisational because you can't just decide to shoot something that's no longer period. So before we talk to Martha, just I just wanted to remind you that we have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. It's a place where if you feel like you're getting anything out of this podcast, you can go and throw us a few dollars. If you uh, make a $10 pledge, you will get a free just shoot it hat which will remind you as you're trying to think about whether your idea is good enough to shoot that it doesn't matter. You should shoot it. And also it'll help us out. And if not, no worries. But again, you can go to patreon.com slash just shoot it pod to find out more about that. We appreciate you. You appreciate us. We get it. 
Yeah. Or just email us. Just shoot a pod at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts. I will respond to all of them. Matt probably won't. Hey, that's our division of labor. <laughs> yeah. No, I, uh, I'm the chatter. Well, uh, speaking of chatting, let's begin our chat with Martha Stevens. So can you give us the logline for To the Stars real quick, just so our listeners know a little bit more about the film? Yeah, it's it's a very classic coming-of-age story set in 1961, Oklahoma, about a reclusive teen that is bullied at school, and so she just kind of shrinks away and tries to make herself go unnoticed. And meanwhile, a new girl shows up in town with maybe a secret in the past, and she befriends the isolated girl and sort of shows her what she has to offer and helps her come of age and learn to love herself. Mm-hmm. And it premiered at Sundance last year, 2019? Yep. Cool. Are you excited? Yeah. I mean, I have no idea what to expect. We did have a theatrical release and then this happened and understandably things are changing and you just kind of have to go with the flow and do I wish people would see this in the theater? Of course, but I am also sort of a realist and understand that having this available now to people while they're stuck in their homes, I'll get more eyeballs on the movie. So I'm cool. Let's actually talk about that a little bit because we've talked to a lot of people who were set to, you know, have their big film premiere at Sapphire or something like that. We've we've talked to a lot of uh, broken hearts recently. As much as I, you know, I'm a purist and I prefer to see movies in theaters. I understand that's just not, I'm in the minority. And uh, so I feel like at this point, getting to have a theatrical run is, it's almost like for the filmmakers more than it is for the audience sure. um, yeah. with a movie this size. Because it, it would have been like played in like 20 theaters or something. It wouldn't have been a wide release. So, Why do you guys think the theatrical release matters? Like what, is it about the big screen or is it more about the attention that people are giving your movie as opposed to their phone or their kids, or whatever else is distracting them at home. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. I definitely think people invest in a film at home. It's They're less invested. I mean, they get distracted easily. You know, even if the movie, they like the movie. I mean, I was watching a movie last night, and I caught myself picking up my phone. And I was like, what are you doing? So don't do that. And I'm making an attempt a conscious attempt to not, but I don't think most people do. I especially like when you're watching a movie with subtitles and you pick up your phone. You're <laughs> yeah. just like, oh, I don't, I don't know what's happening at all. So we heard, Martha, that To the Stars was, you were planning on shooting it in black and white, and also you knew that there would be like multiple versions of it, like a black and white version and a color version. Can you tell us what you did as a filmmaker to address that? It premiered in black and white, and it's like the photography of that era, like like portrait photography if you'd go to like a department store. So when we made the movie, we knew we were going to have to deliver both versions, both color and black and white. So we made sure to have a plan for color. It's a period drama, which is not something that is, you know, investors aren't creaming themselves to invest in a period drama to start with. And then I wanted to make it in black and white. And that was another strike against it. So one of the uh, agreement we came to with the investors is that we would make both versions, which made a lot of people's jobs harder. Like my gaffer, my costume designer, my production designer, a lot of people, anything visual on the screen that you're basically... So 
we just tried to make sure we broke up a, a lot of what was on screen with different textures and patterns and stuff, as opposed to like a paying attention to grayscale as much, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, you couldn't use a Hershey's syrup for blood if you wanted. Right, we could have. <laughs> Except that would have looked uh, bad in the color version. <laughs> talk to us a little bit about the transition from going, from making films that you wrote, or at least co-wrote in certain circumstances, to something where now you're just wearing the director's hat. What did you like about it? What was a challenge? What surprised you? I really liked it. I really have nothing negative to say about the process. And I know that that's, you know, it's just my experience with this specific script and the writer Shannon, but we, we really got along really well. And I found it quite liberating to be able to be objective about the screenplay. I think so many times we fall in love with a scene or a character or something that's like maybe not really bringing much or servicing the script much, but we were like staunch and stubborn and wanting to keep it there. I don't know. I, I found it. Yeah. Freeing. And the process with Shannon, she, she's been writing for a long time and this is her first produced script. So I think she was really excited and eager. She sold scripts to studios and stuff, but that would just sit there on the shelf. And I pitched to her my idea and sort of vision for it, and she liked it. So we started out on the same page, and my notes to her were things just like dialing back some of the melodrama. It is like a 60s melodrama in a lot of ways, but for a modern audience, just tweaking things here and there. But ultimately, it's it's very much her, her script, and but my vision for it. And yeah, it was collaborative. And how did the project come to you in the first place? How did you get the opportunity to pitch on it? My producer, Kristen Mann, we were working on this like big sports movie that I was trying to make that was just taking a long time. And so she was reading scripts. She was having agents send her scripts that didn't have a home. She was just looking for material. And when this one came to her, she really liked it. And once I started expressing interest in looking at other people's scripts, she thought this would be a good fit for me. What Were you competing against other directors that you know of? I'm not really sure, you know, because this is, this is like a different process than when my agent send me a script that I have to pitch on. This is much more friendly and organic, I think. But I think Kristen really wanted me for it. And then she just had to like, let me talk to Shannon and convince the other producer that I was the right fit. Can we maybe even back up a little bit more? Just like Passenger Pigeons was your first film, right? Yes. And that premiered at South by? Yeah, somehow. Two movies at South by and then two movies at Sunday. So that's a hot street. And there must be like a film festival EGOT, right? What's the film festival equivalent of like a premiere at Sundance, a premiere at South by? You have to get to Cannes and uh, Tribeca, I guess, as well. Anyway, the point is uh, a I've... hot streak I was going to say Lanto did play at Tribeca. Oh, there you go. Yeah. But I've never played at Cam. So. Yeah, we, we, there's got to be a great acronym out there for it. But the, <laughs> the point is, is that you're killing it, right? But with movies that feel very specific and regional and intimate, they're not packed with movie stars or, you know, they're really like humanistic no. stories, it seems like. And so that's a very impressive track record of these kind of intimate, small you know, painterly films. Tell us about how you got your start on those first few features. I think I, it's really about the right time and place sort of situation. So with Passenger Pigeons, 
I made that with like three friends for $7,000. And it was at a time where mumblecore filmmaking was, you know, a thing. That's 2010, right? Yeah, it premiered at the South by Southwest in 2010. So it was just at a, at a time where like those sorts of movies, like people were willing to sit and watch like a rough around the edges $7,000 feature. So, and you know, filmmakers like Kelly Reichardt were making like a little bit bigger than that, but like her version of these sort of American realism, like mm-hmm. looking at sort of hard scrabble communities and So I just was really interested in making a piece that talked a little bit about sort of where I'm from and mountaintop removal and coal mining and sort of just how a community like that lives after a miner dies in an accident. And so it's like a very ambitious, it was a very ambitious, like Robert Altman inspired big ensemble movie. And yeah, I don't know. I kind of made it and I just hoped it would play it South by Southwest. But beyond that, I had no other expectations for it. The goal was just to play at a festival and to get my name out there. And I was sort of looking at like some of my peers, like what they were doing, like Aaron Katz and like Joe Swanberg and those guys. Yeah. And so I did it again with a Pilgrim song came two years later with a little more money. It was like a $25,000 movie. What did you shoot Pilgrim song on? By that point, 2012, you're probably at least like on a red camera or something. It was a red. Yeah. 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 I mean... These movies were made through like crowdsource sourcing and stuff. So I could just do whatever. I didn't have anyone to answer to. And yeah, the whole point was to play at festivals, um, not make money. Well, I think a a lot of our listeners would think like, oh, you made this feature that's very, like Matt said, specific movie that takes place in Kentucky. It plays at South by. This is like the same time Winter's Bone comes out. And that kind of genre almost seems hot in a way, way, right? As silly as that sounds. And then I think a lot of our listeners would think that if you accomplish that, then the studio offers come in, then you get to do a big movie. You had a poignant feature premiere at South by. So then were you waiting for that? And then you made Pilgrim Song? Or were you not even really expecting that type of response? Oh, I wasn't expecting that sort of response just because I mean, I I did go to film school and our film school was run like a little studio system, but I was completely ignorant in terms of it was more like, go, here's a script, here's your script, go pitch it. And then you get the green light. But like, really, like all like the nuances and stuff of like the business side of it, I had no idea what I was doing. I like went to South by the first time cold without like a publicist without I mean, I didn't do any, like, the only thing I did was make a poster. And so it's been a, it's been a slow learning process. But with both of those movies, I didn't expect anything except I was hoping for the next movie to have more money. Beyond that, I was expecting it to be financed by, like, you know, indie financiers. And I was expecting it to be for very little money still. It was after Land Ho that I started to expect bigger things and yet that still didn't happen either so and was that because land ho was a sundance film do you feel like that like the sundance versus south by kind of put you in a different circle of filmmakers well it was it was sundance and also it was a movie that we made for three hundred thousand dollars and we sold it to sony pictures classics for 1.7 million and it had like you made 1.4 million dollars on that yeah i mean i didn't the investors did but but still, yeah. that that's something that you can, you know, yeah. take to the bank. 
right? Yes, I thought so. So from that, I you know I end, I end up getting agents. I signed with UTA. And Landho is also a, a project that you originated. Well, yeah, with my friend Aaron Katz. So we co-directed it and co-wrote it together. And I think that that's actually that's maybe one of the reasons why it was tricky afterwards because then came the question well how do we know what you did and what he did yeah which is so weird right yeah i was like but we did everything together like it was a collaboration but i think yeah that's i thought because yeah we were kind of like the cinderella story of sundance that year i really thought that things would start happening for me and it just didn't it just didn't work that way so yeah there's this weird idea right that people like this auteur idea that like a film is made by like one person when in reality no director makes a movie and doesn't get notes and doesn't see how audiences react and doesn't change yeah. things and or or collaborate with a huge team of people do you know right. what i mean like the stu- studios yes. aren't like well if you don't have the same production designer and cinematographer and sound designer and you know like there's a ton of people who weigh in very significantly on what you're film ultimately becomes so like it's such a weird disconnect between thinking like oh co-directing and the collaborations of the rest of the cast and crew are less important somehow it's so strange yeah Um, i agree yeah so landho comes out at sundance you're the darlings you have a giant sale and then what's like can you tell us the time between landho and to the stars what's happening yeah it's five years (laughs) five years and it felt it felt so you know there's there were highs and lows like we we won a spirit award in 2015 we won the john cassavetes award so there was like another moment where i was like all right here it is this is gonna help me get my next big thing and it it didn't end up that way and i was like i said working on a script like a big female sports comedy kind of in the same vein as like the bad news bears and Slapshot, And that's what I, that was my baby. That's what I wanted to make. And it ended up getting set up with some producers and we just couldn't get cast attached. And so I started to learn how much slower the process is once, once you have more money and you need bigger actors and it's a bigger project, like how much longer it takes to get going than these like little, like guerrilla style, you know, films we'd been making up until then. Wow. I guess that's the other thing. Neither Matt nor I have, have had Sundance films, unfortunately. But I think that we imagine that if we had, it would be easier to go to cast and be like, hey, I just had a movie at Sundance. Here's a great role for you. There's sure, a budget, sure. you know, multi million dollar Girl, budget. Yeah. Yeah. What's, but it's still no, not easy, no. you're saying? No. No. I mean, I, you, it's just like there's like such there's like such a long channel of you write something, you find the producers, the producers start sending offers, the offers go to the agents, the agents may or may not pass it along. That actor may be interested, maybe not, but then they might have like a year where they're busy and they won't it's just like it's a kind of a miracle that mm-hmm. anything gets made, frankly, because of how long things take. So yeah. So during know. this whole time, it's- are you writing other things and direct? So, I mean, I was reading scripts. I was pitching on stuff here and there. And yeah, I was like working on developing a couple of TV shows and stuff. But for the most part, 
when I wasn't developing my, my big, like, sports film, I was then trying to develop, like, to the stars, which, you know, took some time to, to pull together and stuff. So, yeah. Right. And, and so, how did you, who ended up financing to the stars? To the stars was financed by a group out of North Dakota called Northern Lights. And they did It Follows, I think is like maybe the biggest movie that they financed. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, you've got this other project going that you're really excited about. And I think that it's easy for filmmakers to think, oh, my passion project is the one that's going to go. I've got all this momentum behind me. And then to pivot and to make something different because it spoke to you, but also that the opportunities kind of come together. There's like, I think there's a, a little bit of a head game that people have to play being okay with knowing that sometimes things have to go on the back burner. and Sometimes certain projects just come together faster than others. Yeah. Sometimes you have to be okay with putting something on the shelf, which I had to do. And now I'm back. I'm still trying to get that movie made that I was trying to, to make uh, six years ago. And it's okay. You can come back to stuff. It's like, I don't know. There's no shame in that. I don't think. So let's get back to, to the stars. Can you tell us a little bit about making that movie? Like, where did you guys shoot it? We shot it in Oklahoma. We were based in northwest Oklahoma in this town called Enid. And we shot, you know, all over northwest Oklahoma. Hmm. And we shot it in 20 days. Actually, technically, I guess 20 and a quarter. We had a day that we kind of lost because of crew-wide food poisoning. Ooh. Oh, no. Yeah. I got food poisoning on my set once, but it was only it was only the vegetarians who got sick because we were the only ones who ate vegetables, so it, it was just like four of us. Yeah, I don't. I yeah. think this was like during the the whole like romaine lettuce thing <laughs> of twenty eighteen. I didn't get sick, and luckily our actors didn't get sick, but most of the crew got sick. Yeah. So were you shooting that day and then slowly people are like, uh, I got to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was surreal. It was like something out of a horror movie. I, I, you know, hear murmurings, like some of the, some of the, gr- the wardrobe girls were down and, and, and then I look over and my DP is like in a ditch puking. And I was like, <laughs> what is happening? And then they're like, you need to go, go ahead and go to the next location. So I went ahead and like my DP and I would ride together. Like we shared a rental car and I had to leave them behind. I felt so weird, but they were like, they were taking a van around, picking up different crew members that were sick. And so then I get to the next location and it's like, everyone's in this, the yard of this house, like puking and like in people in the flower bed puking and stuff. we had to call at that point here we are hollywood film crew here to come to your town oh wait we're parking in your front yard they let us come back and shoot amazing were you able to bring people from your that had worked on your previous films or was it just the people who were nearby basically yeah i used um the same editor and my same like I, i have a little you know group that i work with from film school like my dp and my editor i've known since i was 18 and i i love those guys and i love making movies with them and i think having that sort of shorthand is so important when you're rushing to shoot a movie a feature in 20 days so i i'm kind of the the mindset like it's these guys or or nothing 
right now. Like I, I hope to always work with. Especially when you're doing like a 20 day shoot, it just seems like there's not a lot of room for error. And on top of that, a period piece. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, like some of the challenges of the period piece? I mean, it was a big reason why I was attracted to the project because I, I love period pieces. I love being able to be absorbed in another time and place. And so I, yeah, you could have told the story uh, now, but that I don't know if I would have been as interested. And uh, I think like my, what I was most naive about in, in terms of the period aspect was just how long it would take to do hair, makeup, and wardrobe, and how long that would eat into time. Like, usually on a, an indie set, you're like waiting on camera. Right, and stuff. or waiting for the cops to leave. Right. They don't see what you're doing. Right. But on this movie, it, because there's so many characters on the screen simultaneously, and then a bunch of extras often, like you're at a high school and everyone, mm-hmm. everyone had to get made up. They're wearing, the girls are wearing like period bras, which take longer to put on and have weird little cups and stuff and like five layers of skirts and all of that it takes a long time to dress, weirdly enough, which I didn't even think about. And I have shots with like cars, like a bunch of exterior shots, street signs, all that stuff. How much work and prep are you doing to get all that stuff right yeah i i my production designer jonathan guggenheim i think like he his team they like killed themselves to get it right and i think they knew how important it was both jonathan and i are kind of nerds about finding like anachronistic stuff in movies i know for me i get pulled out of films if if i'm watching it and i'm like i know that's dish pattern is from the 70s and this movie's set in the 60s like just seems lazy i don't know so yeah i think jonathan killed himself to get it right and i hope it i hope it seems like there's a lot of attention and care put into the look of the movie because there was my team they're amazing so i hope people appreciate their work are you worried about like the way people are speaking to like accents and all those things like to make them period accurate yeah that and that's a little harder to control you know so we just sort of had conversations i tried you know like the hazel character adelaide clemens like we decided she she wanted to try like a sort of a sissy spacek ish coal miner's daughter accent and we were like okay she's moved there from from (laughs) east kentucky you know like we just made decisions like that i think it all feels like fluid and it gels and I don't think there's anything that on screen that seems like weird or off-putting. So it worked. Well, I wanted to ask just because like you're, you know, looking back at like the four movies that you've made, they all have these very naturalistic performances and kind of like real emotions. And I guess I'm curious what your strategy to like approaching performances and working with actors and like, I mean, you look at like Pilgrim Song or even like Land Ho, that's a comedy, but that... It just feels so real, like almost like you're documenting these two old guys like traveling around. Like how what's how do you work on performances? How do you prep? Like what do you t- talk to actors about before you shoot? What do you do if you see a performance that feels false? I think To the Stars is uh, a little bit of a departure of what I had been doing, which was I had been casting a lot of non-actors. Like Land Ho, one of the leads was my cousin. And he was a, Are you serious? Yeah, he was a doctor. He was, That's awesome. So... 
just casting non-actors to play some kind of version of themselves, basically. But now, with To the Stars, I'm working with someone else's script. I, I feel like, you know, I want to honor their script. And I typically, you know, would allow for a lot more, like, improvisation and stuff than I did with To the Stars. And uh, I think, like, what was most important with this movie was just have, being able to have enough conversations with the actors that they just really knew their characters and really digging in deep and figuring out like, what was that character doing five years ago? Like, what was high school like for this character? Just really exploring and layering and figuring out the, these people because we didn't have any time for rehearsal. I will come in with my own ideas and say, what do you think? Like maybe this and that. And then it's, yeah, you just kind of go back and forth and like Jordana, that she plays Francie, Iris's mom, she brought so many great ideas to that role and really figured out like why she was making the choices she was making because on the page, sometimes Francie just seems like an antagonist, just like a villain. <laughs> and Jordana got it to a place where, although like everything she's doing to Iris is kind of terrible and misguided, it's all coming from a place of love. And yeah, I just like collaborating with the actors. Yeah, because this is not a script I wrote. So I, I too kind of like the actors get to look at it at face value and then kind of add to it. It's not like I'm writing with all of this information already in my mind, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, totally. I'm curious on that same topic, if you had weighing the differences or the challenges of a period piece with kind of like a pre-existing sort of visual style, you know, like I think I feel like your other movies, it seems like they have a lot of tableaus and they're kind of like, they allow for improvisation, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think Mumblecore yeah. in general is kind of designed to let naturalism sort of flow. Whereas I feel like this film maybe is a little more traditional in its coverage and its construction. Was that a conscious decision? Was that because of logistics or, or trying to try something new? Talk, talk to us about the visual style a little more. Yeah, I mean, I think if I had been given wh whatever I needed to make movies that I don't think I would have necessarily made these sort of documentary style films that I made at first, it was out of a necess the necessity. I didn't have any kinds of, I didn't have tools or toys or things to play with. Like it was handheld because it had to be. Not because that's necessarily my aesthetic choice. So with To the Stars, I was finally actually getting to dig in, I think. And we were able to like hone something sort of specific and construct scenes in a way that we've never been afforded the luxury of doing before. So we tried to choose lenses and frame shots in a way that sort of reflected films of the, the era where the, the movie set, but using mm -hmm. sometimes some more modern techniques, like having a scene that's like all steady cam. So just like trying to find the balance that it doesn't feel like it's just hokey trying to be this, you know, like love letter to the fifties, but also not be so modern that it, takes you out of the the world mm -hmm. so yeah i think that stuff's really interesting because like you look at like an amazing like three thousand dollar south by film that's like all handheld and 
a lot of non-actors and, you know, just these super naturalistic performances in incredible locations, right? Like Land Ho is like just so beautiful because you're, you know, shooting in a different country and you're, you're, everything just feels real because you get can do all these super wide shots. And then when you do like a period piece, you know, your production designer and your DP come to you and they're like, okay, this is the one angle that works. <laughs> You know, right. if we look in this angle, there's like a yeah, giant a crane doing construction. To it, to yeah, the there's a McDonald's. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a different type of limitation. But and I, most of what I personally have worked on is more like that. We have storyboards where like this is the direction we're shooting. This is the set we're building. This is the set we'll fix in VFX. And we're going to lock down the camera. And it's a little like it's a little like a set in stone in a way that I sometimes wish like I could just. You shoot a scene in the forest and you can point the camera in any any angle that looks cool at that moment, you know? Right. Yeah, it, it lets you be less opportunistic sometimes. I think it's just, you know, I was writing those scripts knowing that they were going to be made for nothing in mind. And so that's why I felt like after Land Ho that I could finally write my dream script, which is like a big, silly, mm-hmm. Burt Reynolds, 70s era car sports comedy. So... Yeah, I mean, I think I I know personally that I'm really tired of making movies the way I did make movies. And, like, I really mm-hmm. would prefer to make really polished films. But I'm glad that... I was going to make a joke before of, like, yeah. your DP is like, oh, my shoulder's not so sore this right. time around. Right. But that is kind of literally true. You know, like, there is, that's metaphorical to kind of the, the whole thing. It's, like, not quite so... I don't want to say labor intensive, but like if you can take your time and and plan things out the way you want to, it can be a more pleasurable experience. Yeah. Yeah. This is like a weird medium where I feel like we didn't quite have the money and time to, to, to explore that in that way. But also we were, we did have more tools and, and things to, to use to tell the story. Yeah, well, that's always the the balance, right? Like, I I feel like I personally love, you know, I always want to do use the Steadicam or the jib arm or the dolly, and then I'll go watch something else that's just shot handheld. And the everyone they spent time on the performances instead of the cinematography. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man, yeah, that's I know, but it, it's like <laughs> really it's nice. give and take, you know, really because I go if I see a movie these days, if I see a movie that's like more geared towards performance, but visually is like, I just don't like it as much usually. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like a good performance, but I mean, film is a visual medium and yeah. I want to be yeah. immersed in something, you know, that's special. Well, I have two more questions real quick. One is going back to you saying that you've just worked with a lot of non-actors. It's something, it's like another thing that I've wanted to do, but always been afraid of. Like I've met people that I'm like, oh, that person's very fascinating. Yeah, they're so has fascinating. a cool look. Let's... I'd love for them to be in a character. Like my brother, I think has, is is a very interesting guy. But I I don't know how. Like, how do you work with them in terms of like saying the things that are written in the script versus being themselves versus like finding their marks and not being aware of the camera. Like, what any strategies for working with real people? I mean, with Earl N plays Mitch and Lanto. really we just had to sometimes say okay we'll say this in your own way you know to and so that's like where the improvising came in because I found that that 
made his performance a lot more natural when he was given that sort of freedom. And also just like, you know, we were shooting pretty beyond like some of the like fun wide shots and like little zooms and stuff for Lanto. We were shooting really just kind of traditional coverage. And uh, we had on Lanto two cameras uh, Mm -hmm. shooting simultaneously so that it would match knowing that it was going to be harder to, to match performances and stuff with those guys. So just like things like that. But I guess I always just listen to my gut and in my, in my intuition more than anything. Like if I think it's going to work with someone and so far it's, I've never had a problem with working with non-actors. For four. I have. <laughs> have you? <laughs> Many times. Yeah. Especially kids. Sometimes. Yeah. You just can't. They just won't do like what we need them to do. That's true. Yeah. Kids are tough. Or people just like, even adults that just get like real stiff or like athletes. Yeah. That are like so cool when the camera's not running. And as soon as the lights are on and the camera's running, they're like, uh, what's, what am I supposed to say? You know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't know if I have like, the solution exactly other than if making it as like easygoing and less of a big deal as possible. So they're not freaked out, I guess. I, I was going to say sometimes when I'm doing like documentary style stuff, I will have like a code word to like tell the crew to keep rolling basically. Oh, because isn't that 50 like, 50? Once... I thought that was the does, term does everyone mean, uses. Does that mean just keep rolling? Yeah, hey, we're going to do a 50-50 here. Like, it means, like, the actors yeah. are doing something we love, but we don't want them to know that we're recording. Sure. Just, like, the crew knows to start rolling, and the sound person is rolling. Huh. And we'll, so 50% of it. the team is, is aware of what's happening, and 50% <laughs> of the team isn't. That's good. Yeah. yeah. I actually don't know why it's called that, but yeah. I've never heard of that. I had just one last question, which is a very obvious question. Okay. So you had this movie. It premiered at Sundance. It's your second Sundance premiere. You already had a big sale. What's what happens now? I mean, your budgets are gone up. Your, you know, the distribution is probably going up. You know, Sam Goldwyn is distributing this movie. It's going to be on VOD while everyone's trapped at home. What's like the next move? And and I and I'd love maybe if your answer can also cover how you're a working film director that lives in Washington. Yeah. So what I've been doing since Sundance is I've been going to LA quite a bit and taking a lot of TV generals and I've been trying to get into television directing as a way to make money between projects. I've been working on that for over a year. I still haven't landed a job. So I think it's just about you just keep going and eventually someone will give you the the break that you need. It's tricky to to transition because I, you know, what you keep hearing is well, TV moves a lot faster than movies and we're just worried about having like a, a film director come in and I'm like, but independent films mm-hmm. move. Yeah, but you do 20 days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, give me a break. Yeah. So I'm hoping that will happen. And I've gone back to that script that I put on the shelf and I'm working on a new draft of it and I'm developing a, a TV series that I oh, cool. am working with um, a production company on. Yeah, if, uh, if anyone else wants to see To the Stars, how can they watch it? Do you know? It comes out on April 24th, and you'll find it on Amazon and iTunes and Fandango. Okay, so Martha, are you cool with uh, doing an unpaid endorsement with us? Yeah. Unpaid endorsements! 
Awesome. Well, I will kick it off. The Criterion Channel has both Police Story 1 and 2 available for streaming. The transfers look great, and I have really found a lot of solace in just like zany 80s kung fu movies. And so those are kind of the ultimate versions of that. It's Jackie Chan at his best. He's He knows he's funny, but he's still taking things seriously. The t- stunts are insane. So he good. sings the theme song. So good. So good. So uh, Police Story 1 and 2 are both uh, streaming on Criterion right now. That's my endorsement. Does Criterion, that costs money, right, to subscribe to that? Yeah, it's like... 10 bucks a month. Like, I think you can get the annual subscription and save a little bit of money. But, uh, but they're rotating things in and out really regularly. And also they do a great job of uh, curating things. So they'll, they'll tell you why this movie is interesting. They've got a lot of special features and stuff and of always bringing things in and out of the collection. So overall, I like it quite a bit. Cool. And they do fancy old movies that you haven't heard of and then also Jackie Chan movies. So that's pretty nice too. I'm going to endorse two things because we are all like sheltering at home right now. We're doing a lot more things on our own. And I think a lot of people are like just filming themselves and making things at home. And so I, I've seen this thing around for like many, many years, but I've never actually used it before, but I got a gorilla pod. It's like a little tripod for your phone and they make bigger ones for like DSLRs and stuff, but it's just really awesome you today i connected it to my tree and then like filmed my daughter and me swinging and you can like connect it to like your microwave handle and you have like a cool dolly shot (laughs) or like swinging circular dolly shot Uh, it's just a a really fun thing and i've found it on best buy and it was like an open box so it was like half the price so uh, i'm really liking this thing just for filming myself you can also kind of use it as like a selfie stick like if you hold it like far away from yourself so i don't know i really like it gorilla pod and then, uh, and then uh, the other thing that I've, I'm seeing everyone do online, other than bake banana bread or whatever, or do their own sourdough starter, is building things, especially if you have kids. And I built this swing set last week. And if you, if you follow me on Instagram, I'm sure you've seen many posts about But it's just a really awesome, it's really easy to do. You just can buy these things on Amazon that are like the corners of the swing set. And then you can just get some lumber from hardware stores, which are still open now and also deliver. And so we built like a total legit, like playground level swing set in our yard, all without leaving our house. So you should, you should check it out. They're like swing set corners on Amazon, which I've really enjoyed. So yeah, those are my endorsements. Martha, what do you got? I have been playing Pathfinder, which is a sort of a version of Dungeons and Dragons with my Mm -hmm. friends from college online on a website called roll20.net. So you use it and it has all the things you would need to, you know, it has like functions, like the dice function and and your character sheets and your stat sheets and all that. And it does all the math for you. So I have been playing that as a druid seer elf named Azeliel. So I've just nice. found that, like, at least even if you're not into, like, role-playing and Dungeons & Dragons, finding a way to play games with your friends somehow mm-hmm. through Google Hangout or whatever is a great way to pass the time. And 
As far as movies go, I just watched Walter Hill's first feature, Hard Times, last week with Charles Bronson, and it is the perfect film, pretty much. I loved every second of it, so watch it. You can rent it on Amazon. Awesome. Hard perfect. Times. Awesome. Well, thanks for thanks for the recommendations and for talking to us. Well, we will provide links of all of the movies and trailers and a ways to watch your films at JustShootAPod.com. You can follow us across all social media at JustShootAPod and me at MrNanima. I'm on Instagram at OKaplan and a tweet also at OKaplan. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams and the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And stay safe and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 